Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me for freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you this week. We're going to dive deeper into the New York Jets coaching search. We're going to be joined by Andy Vasquez, the Jets beat reporter for the record and USA Today. We are going to talk about the Jets coaching search. Talk about the should trade for Deshaun Watson. That seems to be a hot topic around these parts. Talk a little bit about what the franchise needs to do in the offseason. That's coming up in just a bit. Also going to do our wild our divisional round picks, excuse me, with Alex Fasano, Steelers fan. Tough break for him as the Steelers lost. I had a good week in the picks. We'll do the picks for all four games of the divisional round as well. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast. We're also going to dive into the new Tiger Woods documentary on HBO. Tiger HB, on HBO and two parter. Part one came out on Sunday at the same time as the football game. Highly controversial one. See, there's a lot of takes on this. I'm going to talk to Dandy Martini, our golf guy. We're going to break down part one on the podcast at the end of the show. But we'll get to start this week's opening tip. We're going to take a look back at Wildcard Weekend, all the storylines, right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here. Opening tip time. Talking super wild card weekend. For the first time, we get six playoff games on wild card weekend thanks to the expanded NFL postseason. I know there's a lot of hang-wringing going into the year about are you diluting the playoff field? Are too many teams getting in here? Are we going to have a bad team, a below 500 squad get in? I got to say, the first super wild card weekend put a lot of those concerns to rest because it was so much fun. And there are a lot of fans saying, boy, how do we get by with just four wild card games? Three each day was a lot of fun, and five of the six games were, were very tight games. The, the sixth was not great, but we had another angle on that one. We'll go through the weekend chronologically. We'll start with the Bills and the Colts. The Bills win 27-24. There were moments here. If you're a Bills fan, I know you're happy you won a playoff game the first time since 95. I was f- six years old when you won a playoff game last. We saw the fans on Twitter jumping through tables and basically crying tears of joy. They got to advance another round, but... There's some signs of concern here. The rushing defense, a big area of concern. The Colts basically did whatever they wanted on the ground. They ran for 160 yards on on the ground. They had trouble also putting Indianapolis away. This is a team that has not been good in the second half. This team, basically, they were up 10. The Colts get a late touchdown. I know the ref didn't help them out with that awful fumble ruling for Zach Pascal. He definitely fumbled the ball. The fact that they did not give it back to the Bills to end the game was concerning. Phillip Rivers had a chance to heave it to the end zone, fell short, but it's great for the Bills fans. There's still a lot of work to be done here because in the AFC, the Chiefs are still a mile ahead of the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills will play a lot better than they did if they want to get to the Chiefs game. They still have a tough matchup this weekend. We'll get to who it is in a minute, but the Bills need to play better than they did. We'll go to the Rams and the Seahawks here. This game, very sloppy, very defensive. Rams win it. 
Jared Goff, who does not start this game because he's coming off the fractured thumb, he has to come in as emergency duty after John Wolford gets knocked out by Jamal Adams. The Rams win this game basically without the quarterback. Jared Goff was not looking good. 919 passing, 155 yards. There was one big play in there. There's a lot of, you know, erratic throws. That's not great. And I can't blame him because he's playing with a broken thumb, but they were not doing good even before he got hurt. The Seahawks, this is more an indictment then. They were brutal offensively. I mean, outside of the Jet game in the second half, they were atrocious. The questions you have here is obvious number one. What happened to Russell Wilson? If you did a poll midseason, who was the NFL MVP? Russell Wilson would have been number one with a bullet. We had all the great stuff. We're letting Russ cook. Russ is throwing bombs to DK Metcalf. Russ is saying Tyler Lockett. Russ is making plays. That all went away in the second half of the season. And this is something Jeff Bates needs to keep an eye on because there have been rumors that they were interested in talking to Brian Schottenheimer. Their former offensive coordinator now is the coordinator in Seattle. Both Russ and Pete Carroll threw under the bus, essentially, over the weekend. Let's listen. These are from Bob Condotta on Twitter. He covers the Seahawks of Seattle Times. This is tweet number one from Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson says he thinks Seahawks got away from playing as often on offense at a higher tempo in the second half of the year than they did earlier. That could have helped, he says. Also from Condotta, this is from Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll says he wishes the team would have adapted better the way defenses started to play them differently in the second half of the season. You're a Jets fan, you're hearing this. You're basically sending missives to Joe Douglas saying, please do not talk to Brian Schottenheimer. We remember him from our time with the Jets. He was not a good coordinator then. He looks good statistically because he has Russell Wilson. I want him nowhere near my football team. So far, they've not scheduled an interview. It does not sound like they're going to, which is good. Don't do that. One thing you're happy about here, with Seattle losing, with another loss we'll get to in a minute, the pick you got from Jamal Adams trade goes up to 23 because of the loss. So the Jets right now are taking 2, 23, and 34. Three of the top 40 players in the draft will be Jets, which is solid. And Jamal Adams not having himself a good game. Adams got destroyed in coverage. He is still a phenomenal player. Don't get me wrong. He makes a tremendous impact along the line of career. He's a great run stopper. He can he set the NFL record for sacks by a safety in a single season. But Joe Douglas was shown to be right here by not overpaying for a safety you can't cover. The Jets are able to get potentially three stars out of this trade because they get two first-round picks, this one this year, one next year, and a third-rounder from Seattle this year. That's a lot of picks. And a lot of guys build a team out as opposed to paying one safety who's great, but he can't cover. A lot of money. That's a good move. Bucks washington on, Sunday, on Saturday night. High committee was fun. It was definitely exciting. Tampa wins the expected. If you're Tampa Bay, you have to be very concerned here. If I'm Charlie Borges out there who was on here doing picks last week, I would be concerned with the Bucks runs on defense against a guy who could not start in the XFL. Taylor Heineke was the backup for the St. Louis Battlehawks. He's not getting on the field in the XFL. The Washington football team staff, they deserve credit for getting Heineke ready to play. But Tampa, you've got to be better than that especially considering where you're going next week. Ravens-Titans on Sunday. The story here, the fourth and two punt. The Titans build a 10-0 lead. Ravens come back. Ravens run the football down their throats. If 
They have a 17-13 lead in the fourth quarter. Ten minutes to go. They're facing fourth and two, the Titans are, at Baltimore's 40. That's a spot where you're thinking, I'm down. I have one score. This is a manageable fourth down. I got to go for this, right? Wrong. Mike Mayrell punted the football. I saw this happen. I'm like, literally, what is he doing here? What is going through Mike Rabel's mind? Literally, I'm sitting there just going, What the hell's going on out here? Mike Rabel punted there. He gave the ball back to the Ravens. And of course the Ravens, what happened? Six minutes down the field, field goal, next drive. The game's basically over because Brian Daniel throws a pick and the contest is over there. According to Pro Football Reference on their Twitter, they said they've been tracking playoff games specifically since 1994. A team has never punted down by one score in that situation in enemy territory in the fourth quarter. You can't do that. You have to play to win in this league. This is nothing against Baltimore, which has been hot. They muscled the Titans. They shut down Derrick Henry, only had 40 yards on 18 carries. You have to be aggressive here and give your team a chance there. If the Ravens stop you, so what? They're going to have a chance to go down and kick a field goal anyway. You leave yourself more time on the clock to get the ball back. That was a cowardly move, and the Ravens, the Titans did ex- got exactly deserved there. You got to play to win these spots. You don't, you go home. They went home. Saints-Bears, this was the bad game of the weekend. The, the Saints basically dominated from start to finish. Chicago did not deserve to be there. But the thing that was fun about this game, this was the Nickelodeon game. This is the one where we had the Nickelodeon simulcast with different announcers, different graphics, things to try and get the kids engaged. And I checked out some of that feed, and it was a lot of fun. We got to see the virtual slime cannons. Never somebody scored in the end zone. That was great. Sean Payton got himself slimed after the game. That was awesome. And we got to have things that made the game fun for kids. We had young Sheldon explain penalties, which was phenomenal. Here's one of those, courtesy Nickelodeon. A false start. That's when an offensive player illegally moves after lining up for, but prior to, the snap. Like when my dad starts shoveling in dinner before mom says grace. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you, you. yes! Yeah, that's just just fun. It's just so much fun. We also got great moments like Nickelodeon creating little cartoon shorts with SpongeBob characters explaining key football concepts. Like this example of Sandy Cheek, SpongeBob, and Patrick explaining to the kids what a turnover is. And they're delicious. Ah, it's like this. Patrick, you're one team. SpongeBob, you're the other team. And your Krabby Patty is the ball. If you lose possession, you've turned over the ball to Patrick's team. I get it. Can I get my Patty back? More Patty. Yeah, stuff like that is just so fun. And this is something that the NFL was a genius for doing this. This is a great way to reach out to the kids and get them into the game of football at a young age. More leagues need to be doing this. I'm looking at you, Major League Baseball, who decides, you know, we're going to put these games on super late at night and the kids can't watch till the end. You need to have some of these, like, Nickelodeon exclusive games. Like, you know, put, like, a feed on there for the kids to watch the game of the week and maybe have announcers explain the rules of baseball and have it be fun and have cartoon characters appear there. You want to grow the game in its roots. That's a good way to do it. This is very easy to duplicate. The NBA can do this. Maybe CBS, which is the whose parent company owns Nickelodeon, maybe we get a Final Four kids version. That would be fun. 
this is a gold mine here. If you're a sports league, you got to be watching that, taking notes, saying, how do we get this format duplicated for our kids to see sports like that? That's something that definitely should be happening. Last but not least, Steelers-Browns. The shocker of the weekend, and this game, honestly, guys, was over by the end of the first quarter. 28 nothing after one was probably the most shocking thing I've ever seen. And this is another classic example where you're watching this game, you're sitting there going, What the hell's going on out here? The first snap of the game. Shotgun snap from the Steelers. Sails over Ben's head. Browns are flying down the field. They're in the end zone. Cover it for a touchdown. Couple of picks from the Steelers. Quick points of the Browns. This game was over. I know the Browns fans are obviously panicking, saying, what can go wrong for us? We're Cleveland. Nothing goes our way. This game was well done by the Browns. And they won without their head coach. I talked about Charlie Bordy's last week in our pick segment. That's not easy. Look what happened to the Detroit Lions. They didn't have a coach this year. They got embarrassed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Browns went on the road without their coach and won a football game. They also without key players like Joel Batonio, Denzel Ward, the COVID-19. They still find a way to win this game. The Steelers, I think I'd be worried about them. They remind me a lot of what happened to the Patriots last season. Remember last year, New England started 8-0. They were demolishing everyone. Everyone's talking about, oh, they're a Super Bowl team. They're going to win it all. Older quarterback. They collapsed down the stretch. Lost home field advantage. Fell out of the buy range in the last weekend. Got upset in the first round. This year, they're 7-9. I know Tom Brady left, but still, that team was on the brink of collapse. There are lots of questions with the Steelers here. All right, is Ben Roethlisberger done? What are you doing with all your free agents? Juju Smith-Schuster is a free agent. You have a key free agents on the defensive side of the ball. You need to upgrade your offensive line. You need to upgrade the running game. You're over the cap as is. There's a lot of questions in Pittsburgh. There are also a lot of questions for the New York Jets, who are in the midst of a coaching search. They have a lot of draft picks. They have a lot of free agent capital. I'm going to be joined by Jets beat reporter Andy Vazquez to talk about it. Right after this highlight of their year, the trick play touchdown from the Jets-Browns game, Week 16, courtesy of CBS Sports' Kevin Harlan. First and 10. Hand off to Johnson. It goes over to Crowder. They got Berrios downfield at the 15. Into the pylon. And it is a touchdown. What a play. 43-yard touchdown pass. And the Jets are taking the lead. Crowder with the toss. All right, I am back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast talking about the New York Jets today. Joined by their beat reporter for the record and USA Today, Andy Vasquez is here. Andy, welcome. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. And I got to say, this felt like as a Jet as a Jet fan myself, felt like a long time coming with the Adam Gase era coming to an end. And somebody who was around the team all the time, like what was like – did you feel like this was inevitable, like, basically after they got off to that really rough start prior to the bye? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, when they were as bad as they were those first four or five games of the season again, um, you know, it was hard to imagine. Once you start 0-4, you know, your odds of making the playoffs are so little, and, and the team clearly didn't have the talent to do it and really didn't even look like a team that was, you know, as it turned out to be, had anywhere near the talent to compete or, or be competitive for a playoff spot. So you knew he was going to have to you know, be somewhere in the neighborhood of as good as they were last year to keep his job. So, yeah, it, I think very early, I think after that loss to the Broncos, you knew um, what the ultimate fate was going to be for him. 
Yeah, and obviously they've started doing their interviews, recording on Friday night. They've done four so far. There are at least four more on their list. Now that they have a wide net, based on the list of candidates out there, how do you feel about the way their process is going? Yeah, I think it shows progress from last time for sure. Um, when they were primarily focused on offensive-minded candidates, I think, um, you know, obviously they didn't hire the right person and then they didn't even interview guys like like Brian Flores, the guy who they've been competing against for years in their division and, and ended up going to a division rival. So the fact that they are opening the search to the way every search should be to anyone who can help their team and, and who is qualified and not trying to, you know, think that by finding some offensive guru who can help their quarterback, that that is the answer. I mean, yeah, that's part of the answer. You are going to have to develop your quarterback, but it can't be be all end all. Um, there's a lot more that goes into being a good coach than being, a, you know, just being a good tactical mind. And, and I think that's what something that a lot of people miss on Gase. Like he does have some good ideas. He does have some capabilities, but um, he wasn't able to ever, you know, make the adjustments well enough as, as Jets fans saw many times in, in games. And he wasn't able to, I mean, really, that's what it was about. He wasn't able to ever make the adjustments during games. He wasn't able to make the adjustments he needed to make to his offense to, to best fit Sam Darnold and the talent around him. And, and that's what made Adam Gase a bad coach, not the stuff that people didn't like, like the way he, he acted in, in news conferences or, uh, you know, the, the, the noise about players not liking him. I, I don't think he was like a beloved coach by any means, but I don't think he was like this hated figure in the locker room that a lot of players that a lot of fans think he was. Yeah, I think I was evident by the fact the team played hard down the stretch for him. They did manage to win a couple of games down there. And right now, I mean, the list of guys, I, I do like that there's have wide ranges of backgrounds. There's former coaches, coordinators. I know they rumors about them talking to college coaches. Like, who on the list sticks out to you and says that, like, this would seem like it could be a very good choice if they were to go that direction? Well, I think the list starts with Eric the enemy and, and it would be hard to go wrong. I mean, it doesn't mean, first of all, here's the thing about all these hires. Like nobody knows um, if it's going to work out and you can hire the best guy on paper and it may not work out. I mean, there's some guys, you know, it won't work out with probably, but um, you know, it's the same thing with in the draft. Like nobody really knows until it, until it happens. So, but with a guy like Eric the enemy, it would be hard to, um, you know, criticize that hire because he's got pedigree. He's been part of an innovative offense. He's respected as a leader. Um, so that that's where it would start. And he's been a guy who has been, uh, you know, interviewed for jobs now for, for the last three cycles. I mean, the Jets interviewed him two years ago when they hired Adam Gase. So um, imagine how good Gase's interview must have been just to land that job against some of the guys he was up against it you can be deceived by interviews. There's so many factors that go into this. So um, who knows? But yeah, I think Eric, the enemy is where you start. I think Robert Sala, uh, Sala who interviewed with the Jets on uh, Friday is another guy who definitely has the total package in terms of charisma, uh, leadership has run a defense that has been one of the best in the league for the last four seasons. It steadily has been a big part of San Francisco improving during the time that he's been there. And this is a guy, most importantly to me, who has shown that he can overcome adversity within his unit, which if you look at these last two Jets coaches, 
that has been their downfall. Like when things get got bad for Todd Bowles, when they when Adam Gase dealt with difficult situations, their teams never had an answer in games that mattered or in stretches of the season that mattered. And if you look at the 49ers this year, they lost their best defensive player week two, had several other key parts in and out the whole season, and were still the one of the best defenses in the league. The reason that team didn't go to the playoffs is because the injuries on offense were too much to overcome. So um, I think it starts with those two guys. Personally, I think Salah is a better fit for the Jets, but um, just because I just think that is the kind of guy who's going to change the culture, that kind of personality. But but there's other guys out there who have great personalities too, and and strong units like Matt Eberflus with the the Colts. Um, and I think a, a lot of these guys that the Jets have lined up interviews with uh, have that kind of factor. It's just some of them have been able to show it, and some of them haven't. Yeah, certainly fair. And obviously, you got to talk about, a little bit about the roster on the field and would be remiss given the drama going on in Houston with Deshaun Watson. I know the odds of Deshaun Watson being traded are about the same as the Mets like not like are the Mets like trading for Francisco Lindor for one year. They're gonna they're gonna try and resign him. The odds of Houston being traded, Deshaun Watson are slim, but if for some unforeseen reason they decide to back up and put him on the market, should the Jets go all in to try and get him? Well, I think the fact that he wasn't happy enough for it to get out that he's unhappy with the team, you know, that does, I don't think he's going to get traded, but it opens the possibility, right? Like that's a guy who would never have been critical of the team unless he was seriously pissed. So um, I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility. If, if they can't prove to him that they've got things headed in a direction he wants, um, it could happen. But, but yeah, I don't think it's likely he's going to get traded. And, I, if he do, is really out there, the Jets should seriously consider it. Um, I, I don't know what it would cost. You, it would obviously cost at least that, that number two pick and probably the entire first round and then, or at least another first round pick next year and, and probably more than that. So um, you would be getting a quarterback that you know A, can handle New York, B, is, uh, I, I should say, A, is one of the best in the league, B, can handle what would come with being in New York and is respected and, and uh, is young and in his prime. So yeah, I would, I would make that kind of a deal and do what it takes, but I think the Jets are a little closer to being a decent team than people think, but they have so many holes that it would be um, hard to give away that much in the draft uh, in terms of draft capital. That would be, that would be tough and it would slow down in terms of what they can do, but they could still, they have that money in free agency. They'd still have probably some semblance of, uh, you know, draft picks moving forward and, and would be able to address some of the needs. And to answer that question at quarterback, a question the Jets haven't answered since Joe Namath, I think it would be worth it. Yeah, I also agree with your point that they're not as bad as people think they are. Now there's the records of 2-14, and 14, but you watch the games they played this year and the kinds of games they gave up at certain points of the year with the Denver game, this first New England game, the game against the Raiders. Yeah. I feel like going into the year, I thought this team would be a six-win team. And that if you add those three to the two that they did pick up, you said that's five wins right there. I think that's easily a, could have easily could have happened. Yeah, yeah. I think that team, I think this team is not as far away as people think. So I think it is a worthy discussion because if they have the number two pick here, I'm assuming we're going to take Deshaun Watson off the board here. 
what do you think they should do with it? Should they take a quarterback there like Justin Fields or Zach Wilson? Should they take the tackle or trade back? How would you play it? Well, it's, it's hard for me to say how I would play it because it depends on the evaluations that they make. They have to stay true to those. So if they think that one of these two quarterbacks, you're, you're guessing they're choosing between Wilson Fields and, and Lawrence on that incredibly low chance that he were to fall. They think, obviously, if Lawrence falls, it's not a tough decision. But if they think that one of the other two guys is good enough, to is going to be better than Darnold, and it would be, you know, you have to think that if they like one of these quarterbacks, they think he's going to be better than Darnold because, obviously, Darnold hasn't done much. Um, then you draft the quarterback and you start over on your salary uh, clock. You start over the salary clock with a rookie contract. It's just the right thing to do to build the team, and it's I'm not saying Sam Donald is done. I'm not saying he got a fair shake with the Jets because he may not be done, and he definitely didn't get a, share, a fair shake with the Jets. But um, like just for the future of your franchise, the flexibility that having a quarterback that you think can be good under a good contract is is huge, and that's why every all these teams talk about trying to you know maximize the rookie window when they they have a quarterback like like Watson who shows what they can do because it, it's huge for the team to not have to be paying $30 million for a quarterback. So yeah, if they think that one of these quarterbacks is better than, than Sam Donald, it's really not. And, and has the ceiling to be better than Sam Donald. It's really not a decision. They may not think that though. I mean, and, and it would be hard to knock that evaluation because you don't know with those quarterbacks, but then you get risky, you get to a risky pick. If you don't think one of these quarterbacks is the answers, then you trade down. I think, and try to stay in the top like 10, get, you know, a, a wide receiver, get, um, you know, uh, an edge rusher, something like that. Find one of these guys. I mean, obviously the receivers uh, that we saw at Alabama in the national championship semifinal. Uh, I can't, I'm, I don't know why there's too much going on with all this coaching search. I've moved on from the draft <laughs> coaching search. So their, their names are escaping me, but Devontae Smith, I think. And yep. uh, especially him, the, the, the performance that he had, like imagine if the Jets were to put that with Sam Darnold and, or, and then you draft a quarterback late in the first round of 26, maybe that you think maybe a Mac, uh, Man, why am I forgetting his name? Matt, it's Mac Brown, right, with, the, Mac, with Mac, Alabama? Mac Jones. Yeah, Mac Jones, sorry. So maybe he's there at, at 26, 27, where they're going to be pick, picking, depending on where Seattle finishes in the playoffs. Or maybe he's at, um, you know, there early in the second round. I mean, there, there are a lot of possibilities. But the problem is, if you're Joe Douglas, you're now going into year three. If you whiff on one of these quarterbacks, if, if you don't pick them and they go to another team and end up great, like, you're – you're in trouble, and especially if the Jets struggle. So it's risky to not pick a quarterback. People think it's safer to stay with Sam Darnold, but I think it's riskier to stay with Sam Darnold because if Sam continues to suck, and sorry to, to be blunt, but he has he, he has not been good enough with the Jets. And so if Sam continues to play the way he's playing, and some one of these two quarterbacks that the Jets pass on lights it up, like it's going to be hard for Joe Douglas to recover from that. So. Um, it's really interesting. It's it's a really interesting choice. Maybe they keep Sam to compete for a job. I mean, I don't know what you do, but if you do think that one of these quarterbacks is better, it should not be a difficult decision. 
That's why they pay Joe Douglas the big bucks. He has to figure that out for the Jets. And he also is going to have a lot of cap room for agency. I think they don't have many pre-ins. They really want to bring back Marcus May. It's probably top of that list. But considering, mm-hmm. the, considering the way the market is playing out for them and the fact that the cap's going down, I feel like they're in a huge advantage to get kind of guys on this team to help fill areas of need that would not normally hit the market because teams are going to be less flexible to keep whoever they want. So I think that the fact that I don't know if you're agreeing on this, but the fact that there's, they'll they'll probably be able to land an edge rusher in free agency they wouldn't be able to get before, add a receiver or stuff like that. How do yeah. you feel about their chance in free agency? Yeah, I think this, I mean, look, Douglas got a lot of criticism for some of the moves he didn't make last offseason. I think, I mean, he really did. That he, he made some mistakes that I think cost the team, but especially letting Robbie Anderson go. But um, also, this is the right year to have cap space because of what you just said. With with less cap, other teams are not going to be as aggressive. The Jets are going to have less competition. Um, they'll be able to overpay players relative to other teams, but not really be overpaying them potentially in terms of market value uh, for, for long term. So, yeah, it's, it's a good situation for them to get some guys in here who can really help and to have a leg up in free agency, even though they are not necessarily the most desirable uh, destination for, for various reasons, like having this extra money allows them to overpay players. And as we know, it doesn't, you know, CJ Mosley came to the Jets because they paid him the most money, not because he was, they were the best fit. I'm sure he thought it could work, but you know what I mean? So you can get, obviously it hasn't worked out with Mosley, but you can get pretty much anybody if you overpay them. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good situation for the Jets. And then going back to what I said in terms of, um, you know, them not being that far away, I'm not saying that the talent, the roster is anywhere near where it needs to be in terms of talent and depth. And then that, that's a huge issue. And that's part of the reason why this team was so bad this year. But they have building blocks and real talent in the right spots. They have, you know, an, a guy who can anchor the rebuilding of the offensive line in Mackay Becton. And they have a guy who can anchor an already very good defensive line in Quinn and Williams. And now once you start adding pieces to that, it's, it's easier to make that leap. And, and the other underrated thing that Douglas did was that he brought in a bunch of guys this year who were not start, like rather than overpaying an offensive lineman or whatever, he brought in a bunch of guys who probably aren't high quality starters. I don't think the offensive line was as, much better as people thought it was this year but some of these guys are the Jets are going to be in a position to bring back like Van Roten and and he'd be a great backup so now all of a sudden you have depth if they bring in uh, one or two starting quality guys and now you have maybe you know Greg Van Roten as a backup and and other guys who have had experience you know maybe you get to a point where George Fant is a backup or or uh, you know Alex Lewis as a backup. I mean that's not a, that's a good situation to to be in if they bring in the, and they did that on the defensive line too. Where now if they bring in you know a star, they've got other guys who have experience can be rotated in, and now that's how you build depth. So while they didn't have the depth or the starting level talent, the way he set this up, they can make that leap uh, quickly, and they can make it at the right positions by bringing in the right guys. And that this is important. Like you could see this team have a really good offensive line next year and a really good defensive line with a, with a few moves. 
And he's done the same thing at receiver. Like, while it's not okay to go into this year with, you know, Rashad Perriman is like your number one deep threat, a guy who always gets injured. But now if you bring back Perriman at a reasonable price, you bring back Crowder, you bring back Mims, who showed a lot, and you add, you know, uh, maybe let's say Juju or you draft a receiver. Now this receiving core is pretty good. So it's, they're not as far away, like I said, as, as people think. Um, but also, he has to get, like, if you bring in a bad, you, you bring in a big money guy and, and you miss on him, and then it doesn't help. He's got to, you draft the wrong guy, then it doesn't help. You've got to get these signings right. And there are a lot of them to get right, including a position we didn't talk about, cornerback. That, that's one where they're not as close on the depth, and they've got to get multiple things right this offseason or it could sabotage the entire year for the defense next year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm talking to Andy Vasquez of the record USA Today about the Jets. The last question is about the owner, Christopher Johnson, who obviously he said, obviously he's making, uh, maintain a big role in the Jets even after Woody Johnson comes back from the UK in, in the next couple of months. And I know he's gotten a lot of heat from the fans because he was loyal to Adam Gase to a fault, it seemed like, and People saying, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. I did see an interesting tweet from a fellow Jet Beat reporter, Brian Costello. He said that he thinks the problem with Christopher Johnson is that he seems to be too loyal to his guys and wants to trust the guys, and he's trusting the wrong people. Based on your interactions with Christopher Johnson, would you feel it's an accurate assessment? Yeah, I, yeah. it's tough to say. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I've been around Christopher Johnson. I will tell you this. I like him personally. I like him a lot more than Woody personally. Um, he's, he's, he's a personable guy. He's likable. If you had a conversation with him, you'd like him. Um, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying about him being too loyal. Or I, I think I didn't see Brian's tweet, so it's hard for me to comment directly on it, but I'll just give you my opinion on some of the issues that he's run into. Um, yeah, he probably during the Adam Gase process, my, uh, interpretation of what happened is that he probably gave Mike McCagnin. It's not what people think. It's not like as much that he was wowed by Gase. I'm sure he was impressed by Gase and or whatever, but he probably gave McCagnin too much authority over that process and and didn't really question his decision. I, I think you know Mike McCagnin didn't have to be talked into getting Adam Gase here. It's what he wanted. So, um, and that goes to the fact that Christopher Johnson should have fired Mike McCagnin, but instead of firing him, he let him have the biggest say in his coaching search. So um, I, I think the fact that, and then, and then Adam Gates was able to kind of, you know, convince Christopher Johnson into in firing McCagnin, which is actually going to be the, the best part of Adam Gates's legacy with the Jets is that he, you know, got Mike, Mike McCagnin out of there because obviously Mike McCagnin wasn't doing well. But I guess to answer your question, um, yeah, he can be wowed, I think, and, and be convinced sometimes to a certain point that, you know, certain things are the right move. And I don't think he's going to push back too hard on the football guys because he knows they know more about it than him. And that's fine if you believe in the people you if you and if you've hired the right people if you haven't. So it's really going to come down to Joe Douglas. Like he's going to put his faith in Joe Douglas, but what he he and the Johnsons need to be better at is realizing when they've made a mistake and, and cutting. And they didn't really have a choice with Gase, but they could have 
like said, we believe like with one more year in the right roster, he could be the guy for us, but they didn't do that. That shows he's willing to make, admit making a mistake. I think that's important. Um, and I would, that I would not worry about like Christopher Johnson and, and Woody, whatever his role is when he comes back. I don't think they're going to meddle a ton. I think they have in the past, but I think now that's not as much of an issue. And, um, the bigger issue I'd be concerned with is like, are, is he going to be able to recognize when something isn't right for the team and make the move? Um, and it's going to depend on what personality is in here and all that. But yeah, that, that's the bigger concern. I don't think, uh, you know, he's going to try to force them to do things that they don't want to do. All right. The football guy. Yeah. All right. There you have it. Andy Vasquez on the Jets. Andy, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media and keep up with your coverage of the team? Yeah. Well, first of all, our website is northjersey.com. So please go there and, and try to subscribe. It, it helps us immensely and it helps me if you subscribe after reading a Jets story because then, uh, you know, that shows that I'm bringing people to our site. So please do that if you get the chance. I think it, it's pretty reasonable. And then on Twitter, I'm at Andy underscore Vasquez. Um, and by Andy Vasquez on Instagram, although it's been harder this year without as much in-person stuff. I haven't been posting on there as much as I should, but definitely follow me and, and appreciate you having me on again. No problem. Hopefully this year, things will be better with the COVID situation. You'll be able to get more of that Instagram content, Andy. Thanks again. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks for divisional playoff weekend. Joining me today, somebody we last talked to back in week number eight. It's a much better time for his team then, but sports greats Alex Asano is here. Alex, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. I uh, appreciate having me on again. Okay, I got to start off. My condolences to your Steelers because it's got to say, it's pretty rough to basically have your playoff game be over the first quarter. Well, you know, uh, I've been saying this uh, at work the last couple of, uh, of days. I had no confidence going into this game in the Steelers' offense. Yeah, they came back from the Colts down like, with 20, 24, 27, whatever it was. But, you know, it's it just it, – that's a second-half team. It was a totally different team at, at halftime against the Colts. you got to play four quarters in this league. You can't just play for 30 minutes. It's a 60-minute game and no confidence in the offense. Um, the defense just gets gassed too much. The Browns came in with a chip on their shoulder, uh, uh, all the juju talk and this and that. So props to the Browns. They deserve it. Um, it's been like 20 years since they've won a playoff game, so they deserve it. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of off-season talks ahead for the Pittsburgh Steelers. A lot of things to discuss. Yeah, I think the last time the Browns won a playoff game was five years old. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah, it's been, uh, it's been quite some time, so they deserve one. Yeah, they do. And obviously, I just want to ask you, as he's watching this game, was there like a moment where you're like, okay, we're done no matter what happens next? Was it that, that as soon as the first snap? Or was like, what was that moment where you're like, okay, we are screwed today? So after that first snap, I turned the game off. And uh, I actually went into my car and started listening in the car. I drove around a little bit, trying to take my mind off it. Uh, but then it was just pick after pick after pick, swear word after swear word after swear word. Um, and I, I essentially knew by like the third quarter, I saw they, they, they didn't quit, you know. The Steelers never quit. They'll, they'll always fight till the end. But it was just too big of a deficit. I knew in the third quarter they were coming back and put some points on the board. But 
I still didn't watch it uh, after like the first quarter. I turned it off. I was listening, uh, and I knew that it wasn't going to be our day. Yeah, I could tell that very quickly based on the way this was going. And this does be some parallels to, I think, what happened last year with the Patriots. I talked about this earlier in the podcast. Is basically, but last year, New England starts off 8-0, stumble down the stretch, fall out of their preferred seating in the last couple of weeks, and then get knocked out the wild card round. This this year, they went 6-10, and so 7-9, and excuse me. So, like, is this something that you could see happening to the Steelers where they start to just fall off the grid a little bit? Well, actually, um, it's, it's kind of been hidden, really, and it's an interesting narrative. The Steelers have always been positioned and featured as a great team. They're always a playoff contender. They're gritty. They've got great coaching. They're consistent. But behind the curtain, they haven't won anything. They've won three playoff games in the last 10 years. Mike Tomlin's now 8-7 and seven in the postseason. I mean, it, they're still a great team. They, have, they don't have losing seasons. But man, it's like it's like a fake costume. You just know they look great, but underneath it's just all skin and bones, and there's just nothing there. And it's you know I've been mentally preparing myself for a rebuild. The last couple of years as Ben has been not on a decline, but you know he's not the same Ben he was back in '08. So this is something I've been preparing for, and I think it's it's time for for a rebuild. Yeah, I think the real might be coming. I also think you got to get another quarterback in that building to sort of get ready for the line of succession for Ben. So I know the Steelers in mission frequency trade part with my team because Sam Donald's probably his way. Yeah, I feel like that would be a good place for him to land. I would love for the Jets to give us Sam Donald. I'm willing to offer our second uh, round pick for him. I think that would be a fair trade. Um, but here's the thing, and, and I don't know if many people realize this, Ben has another year on his contract. And everybody's saying he's owed this much money, $41 million contract, this and that. He's actually only owed 19 So if he's willing, and I said post-game, uh, I hope the Steelers, quote, I hope the Steelers will have him next season. So if he's willing to take a substantial pay cut, maybe restructure his contract to a, quote, extension, you know, in fake years, you know, maybe they spread the money out over three years, but, you know, we're only going to keep him for one. It, it's all on the organization and how they want to go about it with Ben. You know, this has been the franchise guy for my entire lifetime. You know, he was drafted. I was, uh, I was nine years old. So they have to sit back and think about what he's done to the team. And if he's able to still play at a high level, to which their coach, Mike Tomlin, did say post-game that he believes Ben can still play at a high level. I mean, he threw for 500 yards against the Browns. So it's not like anything's nagging him injury-wise. However, the pick, four interceptions, those are just terrible, terrible mistakes. But that's been Ben's mantra his whole career. He plays great, but, you know, for how great he is, when he's bad, he's bad. And those four picks uh, really cost us against the Browns. And, you know, we'll see what the organization wants to do. Yeah, it's never easy to quarterback, like, coming, a legendary quarterback of the franchise coming down to the end of his career. I mean, we saw it with the Giants, the Eli Manning. We've seen it with some other situations where you have to sort of, like, be able to be realistic and say, okay, can he give us another year, more, more than one year of that? And if he can't, what do we have to do to pivot? Because you don't want to get, end up doing what the Giants did and hang on for one year too long and screw the franchise up long term. Yeah, that's the thing. I think we might have to just give him another year. You know, give him one last shot in the barrel. He kept saying all season that he's here because he wants to give his offensive linemen, his other players that have been along the ride, along for the ride with him, that he wants to win him a championship. Um, so it, it's just a matter of, of do they think Ben 
can get them to the championship. Um, that being said, if they decide to keep him one more year, there are so many unrestricted free agents ready for the Steelers uh, at, in this offseason. They're going to have to figure out a way, give him some more offensive line. And I mean, he didn't get sacked at all this season, really. But every time he was throwing these short passes, they were getting batted at the line. Teams figured out his game plan. Teams knew that he was going to throw it quick. Teams knew that he wasn't going to really air it out. He did towards the end of the season. Um, but, you know, they caught on. So it's just a matter of if they do keep them, you've got to give him a wall and, and, and give him a good offensive line that he can work around. Yeah, you do. And let's, let's say the deep dive in the Steelers another day, probably around the draft, we'll definitely be talking about them some more. But you do have to discuss the Browns. You've seen them two weeks in a row. They beat you two weeks in a row. They're going to Kansas City to be against the Chiefs. Odds are they're not going to win this game, but do you think they can give the Chiefs a tougher time than people think? I believe they, they can. I mean, after this win, you know they have all the momentum in the world. Um, and they did play fairly well. I mean, Baker didn't throw a pick. He threw three touchdowns, 263 uh, yards. And, and Chubb was still running all over us, uh, 76 yards on the ground. Kareem Hunt had two touchdowns. And you still have Jarvis Landry. You still have Rashad Higgins. You know, there's still all these playmakers that the Browns feature. They're not a bad team. They're not the same old Browns, to quote, uh, to misquote Juju. Um, they are not just the same old Browns. Um, but that being said, Kansas City's got the rest. Kansas City's got the best offense in the league. I mean, it's going to be tough, but I think with a chip on their shoulder, they'll give them a fight. But the Chiefs are probably going to still uh, end up on top in this one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's go over the picks. The reason why you're here. Charlie Boris is here last week for Team Challengers. He had a brutal week. Actually, one in five last week, Alex. Oh, boy. Let's hope I don't repeat that. Yeah, he his one win, he had the Washington football team getting the eight and a half against his Bucks. He did get that correct. Also, the Bills laying the six and a half. The Seahawks laying four and a half. Titans three and a half, plus three and a half. The Bears plus ten. And he took your Steelers last night laying the six. So one in five for Charlie. No, I'm sorry, Charlie. I hope I can do better this week. Yeah, I had a better week. I went four and two. I went to head to head with Charlie on three picks. I won all three of them. I had the Rams getting the points. I had Washington, we agreed on. I had the Ravens laying the points. I had New Orleans laying the points. They won. We lost on the Bills and the Steelers, so I was also on board with the Steelers. So, unfortunately, they, they did not do good for both, for all three of us. No, nope, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah. So, on the year, Team Challenge is now below 500, 27, 29, and 1, 1, and 5 in the playoffs. I'm now 34 and 23, 4 and 2 in the playoffs. So, good momentum builder here for me. There you go. Keep it going. Got to keep the momentum. Got to keep the momentum. And last week, doing six games felt a bit nuts. This week, we only have four. We're still going to do all four. We're going to go down the line one at a time, like I did last week with Charlie. We're going to start off on with the picks on Saturday afternoon, 4.35 p.m. on Fox the Rams at the Packers. The Packers are laying seven points at home. Alex, where are you going with this? I'm going to go with the Packers, but I'm only going to go on the money line. And here's why. The Rams took it to the Seahawks on a broken thumb. Jared Goff can still make plays, and yeah, they lost Cooper Cup, but Robert Woods is there to step up. I think the Packers take this game, obviously, but... The Rams are not just going to go down lightly. It may come down to a field goal. It may come down to one of those, you know, Hail Mary passes from Rodgers. But the Packers, I think, will take this one. Um, give me like a 27-21, maybe 27-24 victory in the Packers. 
All right, so if you were taking the points, you go with the Rams. No, I'm going to take. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, the Packers straight up, but okay. I will take the point. So I will take the points with the Rams laying the seven. Okay, I agree. I agree. The Packers are going to win the game. I'm going to lay the seven just because the Rams. The thing that concerns me is Jared Goff was not looking like a quarterback in that game. He went nine and nineteen for 155 yards, and you can't do that against Green Bay. They will find a way to score points in this game. I think. The lack of hours they have is not going to do well here. I think this is one I think the Packers win by 10. So I will lay the points. I am agreed to you out there. Both the Packers are going to win the game. We disagree on the point spread. All right, let's see what happens. All right, next up, we're going to go to Saturday night. The closest line on the board, 815 on NBC. Ravens at the Bills. The Bills are laying two and a half points at home. Where are you going with this game? I'm going to take the Bills laying the points two and a half at home. They have all the momentum. Yes, the Colts gave them a fight, but the Ravens have the momentum of their own. But I think the Bills having a home field advantage, having the fans, having Josh Allen is the difference maker. You saw the Titans were unable to contain Lamar. I think the Bills will be able to contain Lamar. Give me the Bills with the two and a half points. We'll go head-to-head again here. I'm going to take the points with the Ravens. I think the Ravens can win this game outright. I think this is, yes, Lamar did not throw the ball very well. The thing that concerned me with the Bills, Leslie, I mean, they did not look great against the Colts. Their run defense, they got over 160 yards on the ground. The Ravens love to run the football. I think they're going to pound the ball down Buffalo's throats. Their defense is far, is better than the one the Colts put out there. I think this will be a spot where people are underestimating the Ravens, but they can come out there and win this game outright. So I'm going to take the points with the Ravens. I'll go head-to-head with you again. All right, you're taking on Lane. Let's do it. All right. Next up, Sunday, 3.05 on CBS. The Cleveland Browns at the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs laying 10, which seems massive for a divisional game. What are you going to do in this game, this red, Alex? You know what? I'm going to lay the favorite again. Give me the Chiefs with the 10. Uh, the Chiefs are just the top offense in the league. I mean, they're unbelievable. They've had six weeks of rest. You know Mahomes is coming out firing. You know Tyreek Hill is going to want to get in the end zone early. Yes, we saw the Browns drop 45 feet on my ceiling, or 48 feet, whatever the, whatever the score was. I kind of blocked that game out now. <laughs> but I think uh, the Browns will, will fight in this game, but it's going to come down to Baker Mayfield and what he can do. Can he scramble and make the big play? Against Kansas City, in Kansas City, I think it's going to come down to him throwing a pick or him making a mistake at the end of the game that gives the Chiefs the solidified win with a couple kneel downs and they'll be up X amount of points. I think it'll be 10 points. I'm laying the points with the favorite. Give me the Chiefs. Okay, we're going to go three for three going opposite each other. I'm going to take the points with the Browns here because I like what I saw last night against the Steelers. They came out, they dominated that game from pretty much start to finish. And the Chiefs, the thing that worries me about them is this team has not managed to cover a spread since week eight against the Jets when they blew them out 35-9. They have not covered eight straight weeks. They have not really played in three weeks because they basically took off week 17, had off last week. We will rust this game. I think it's going to be closer than people think. I think Kansas City wins by a touchdown. So I will take the 10 points with the Browns on the road for pick number three. All right. We're going opposite sides all day today. Yeah, indeed. Last up, Sunday, 640 on Fox. The Buccaneers at the Saints. I think the best game of the weekend. The Saints are laying three at home. Where are you going with this one? I'm going to, you know what? Give me the Bucks. I'm going to take the underdog here with three points. I do, however, think the Saints win the game. Saints are an unbelievable defense. They allow around about 217 total passing yards a game. Uh, 
You saw how they took care of business in Chicago on Nickelodeon. That was always fun, watching the flying zone, uh, end zone celebrations. That was pretty cool. But the Saints will win the game, but I think it's going to be close. Brady's going to be in this 100%. If Brady's with three, it will come down to a last-second play. Maybe Brady driving, driving the field. They're going to go to field goal range, and, oh, it's an interception to end the game or something like that. I think the Saints have all the momentum here, more than the Bucks. The Bucs let Washington fight. The Bucs let Taylor Heineke run the ball all over them and throw for over 300 yards. So give me the Saints winning a very close game, but I'll take the Bucs with the points plus three. All right, we'll complete the opposition here. I'm going to lay the points to the Saints. They've been my team all year in this thing. They've done me very well, and this is one where... I just think Tampa doesn't match up with them. These, these two teams met twice. The Saints won by 11 week one. They blew them out 38 to three in week nine. I have not seen enough out of Tampa Bay convincing they're going to keep this game close. I think the Saints are peaking right now. They get underestimated constantly. Alvin Kamara is on peak form. Drew Brees going for that last win. I think this is going to be one where they win by a touchdown. So I'll lay the three with the Saints. I think we're going four for four against each other on these picks. <laughs> Sounds good to me. And to that point, who knows if the Bucks will have more of a chip because of that. You know they're definitely angry about that. They're not going to let the Saints demolish them again. So I think it will be a much, much closer game this time around. This is potentially the last call for Breeze. So it's going to be Brady versus Breeze, a hell of a match. Indeed they will. So to reset the picks, in game number one here, the Packers and the Rams. Packers laying seven. Alex is taking the points of the Rams. I am laying them with the Packers. Bills-Ravens Saturday night. Bills laying two and a half. Alex is laying those points. I'm taking them with the Ravens. Sunday, Chiefs-Browns, Chiefs laying 10. Alice will lay the points of Kansas City. I will take them with the Browns. And last but not least, Sunday on Fox, Bucks saints Saints laying three. Alex is taking the points with the Bucks. I am laying them with the Saints. And that's your picks for Divisional Weekend. Coming up next week, we have Championship Week picks. Our good buddy Joe D'Aloisi will be back on the horn talking about his Packers. Oh, wow, Joe. I miss Joe from our days over in New Rochelle. So I hope Joe uh, is very successful in his picks next week. Yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to look at the schedule here. Once the Packers are by, I said, okay, I got to wait to get Joe on because the Packers are probably playing for a trip to the Super Bowl in that week. So it's a good time to get Joe up. Well, I also myself have a uh, Packers to win the Super Bowl ticket. Uh, so I, I might be with Joe on this one. So let's see what happens. What odds did you get on that ticket? Uh, I got him at plus 600. That's a solid number. Yeah, not bad, not bad. I have the Packers. I also have um, a Bucks ticket and a Bills ticket to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, the Bills ticket, I'm sure, also was probably pretty good value. Uh, yes, the Bills, I believe, let me actually pull it up for you right now, the Bills ticket I got at a value of plus 1000 Yeah, th- there you go. Because, I mean, most people don't even think they'll get the Super Bowl because they have to get past Kansas City. So the number on anybody outside of them in the AFC is pretty high. Yeah, exactly. And I got my uh, Bucks ticket at 13-1. to 1. Yeah, so there you go. You know, maybe one of those hits, you, you got you, your picks went according to those tickets, so maybe you get lucky, hit all three. That's, that, that's the hope, Mike. That is the hope. Yeah, because then you have a three and four shot. Exactly. More, more the merrier. Indeed, Alex. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, people find on social media, keep up what you're doing over at SportsGrid. Uh, you know, you can follow me at, on Twitter at Alex Fazano, F-A-Z-A-N-O. Uh, over at SportsGrid, we just launched on Sirius XM Channel 204, so feel free to check us out. Uh, 24-7 sports betting, uh, learn to get the winning edge, get on the grid. Uh, you can also check out my show, The Morning After, producing 
with hosts Ariel Epstein and Jared Smith. That will be on SiriusXM, as well as MSG Plus for all of you uh, local New Yorkers and all that fun stuff. So feel free. Check out Sports and get on the grid. Yeah, you definitely got to get out of the grid, especially since Governor Cuomo always hinted that they're going to try and legalize sports betting in New York State. So this could be a good place for you to go every morning. Oh, yes, definitely. You want the winning edge? Get on the grid. Uh, New York, let's hope uh, mobile betting gets here soon. But, you know, it's a slow and arduous process. But this is the first step. Yeah, hopefully when next football season we'll have this all set up and ready to go. That is the goal, my friend. Yeah, before, one last thing. I know, I'm curious. I know you, sometimes we talk about like sports documentary. Did you hear about the Tiger Woods documentary on HBO? I actually did, and I saw a couple of previews for it. I'm, I'm very much interested. I, I think that's going to be a greatly, uh, a greatly great depiction of Tiger and his journey, the rise and the fall. I mean, we saw how the last dance went and how awesome that was. I think this is going to be just as good. Yeah, it's highly polarizing right now. I'm going to break down the premiere of it with uh, my, my golf guy, Dan Martini right after this. Please forgive me, but sometimes I get very emotional when I talk about my son. He will transcend this game and bring to the world a humanitarianism which has never been known before. This is my treasure. Please accept it. And use it wisely. All right, we are back here. You were just listening to the trailer of HBO's two-part documentary on Tiger Woods, simply entitled Tiger on HBO. Joining you today, our golf guy and a member of the P- works of the PGA Tour, Dan Martini. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be back, Mike. And, uh, yeah, this was a really interesting piece. So happy to talk about it with you. Yeah, I got to say, when you listen to the trailer, it makes it seem far more epic than what it ended up being the first part. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a little confusing to me because it felt that trailer was so strong and powerful and very uh, moving. Uh, and what we got from the actual documentary, uh, my initial reaction to it was it was really all over the place. Uh, and a lot, of, um, a lot of cutaway pieces and a lot of uh, stuff that we'll get into here over the next few minutes. But I just um, I thought it was going to be something different. Uh, than what it actually was. How did you feel? Yeah, I thought it was sort of like, it does sort of feel like I was trying to tell like three different stories in one, and I just felt like I was confused at the point, trying to figure out what exactly the narrative they're trying to go for is. But before we dive any further in this, I want to point out two things. Number one, Mike and Dolan's on your Colts losing the first round of the playoffs. What happened there, in your opinion? Uh, it's something that all of the players after the game, it was really tough. Uh, it, it's so tough be a Colts fan right now because of the fact that we had that game for the most part. We had our chances to, to not only win the game, but, but win by a comfortable margin. Had we made some better decisions with the clock and not played so aggressively. There's a lot of people out there that, that wish their coaches 
would go for it on fourth and short. And, you know, the Colts are a perfect example of a team who maybe you just take the point and you, and you put the pressure on the other team. But um, I, I knew that going into halftime, uh, if, if we were kept it within a touchdown, that it would be close late. So I was pleasantly surprised when it was only 14-10 at halftime. But it was so frustrating because it probably should have been 17-7. And if it was 17-7 at halftime, we probably would have won the game. So uh, it, it, it's a really interesting thing to hear the players talk about how, how you can learn to not beat yourself. Uh, they all fully admit that, that the Bills were a little shell-shocked by what some of the Colts could do. So the talent is there. But part of what the Browns are, are learning right now and what the Colts need to learn is how to win games and not shoot yourself in the foot. So I was encouraged by a lot of things. I knew this team was flawed. But at the end of the day, I also knew that we were susceptible to situations like they found themselves in um, you know, late in the second quarter against the Bills. We should be winning, but we, we took a chance. It failed, and now we're down big. So, you know, those those four, seven, uh, 14-point swings, when you make these kinds of decisions, cost you games, and that's what happens. So I was encouraged by it. I, I don't love having the 21st pick. I really hope that we move from that spot uh, to, to take a chance. There's so many good quarterbacks this year. I'm currently trying to keep my eye on Mac Jones. I don't know if he's a future Colt, but I know he'll be on the board, and he could potentially get himself into the first round. Because we are, don't don't kid me, Philip Rivers or not, they're looking to make another quarterback acquisition this offseason. I just don't know if it's a veteran or a rookie. Yeah, that's the Colts thing. And number two, before we dive any further into this, I just want to put on the record here that you know Dan works the PJ Tour. His views are not indicative of anybody on the tour. It's just Dan's personal opinion of the movie. No direct attachment to the tour in any regard. Yeah, I'm, I watched this as purely a fan of golf and somebody who appreciated uh, and continues to appreciate what Tiger does for the game at large, and, and not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, so once again, whatever I say here, yeah, does not... Uh, represent what the CJ Tour at large or anybody that I'm affiliated with. So the views are my own. The views are your own. And without any further delay here, I'm going to put up our patented spoiler warning. Okay, if you have not seen Tiger Part 1, all 92 minutes of it on HBO, and you want to see it without being spoiled, you can stop the podcast, go watch the movie, come on back, and talk to us, listen to us about this. But I will say, Dan, this was certainly an interesting experience, and I did find it quite odd that in the credits there, they said that it was clearly inspired by a book about Tiger Woods written by Armin Katayan and another, I forget the other author's name, but this is sort of their version of the Tiger story, not entirely in line with what people would say is the real Tiger story. There's, a, there's so much there. Just so much there, Mike. Um, you know, obviously, they, they do try to say that this is directly correlated to the book that I believe came out in 2017. Um, I do have the book. I have read excerpts from the book. I kind of, the same way that I looked at various portions of the book that were of interest, it's the same way I felt about this documentary. Um, we, as just general sports fans, everybody knows the general gist of Tiger Woods' life. He was a child prodigy. 
Um, he was uh, an icon uh, that the next Michael Jordan of sorts to be an international star. There's only been a few people who've been able to transcend um, races, language, cultures um, through sport, and he is obviously one of them. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I felt the same way with the book about the documentary. Um, there were just, it was just a jumbled mess uh, and a story that wasn't telling the full story. While there are truths in it that I found and, and some things that I that are undeniable because you see the interview footage and you, and you hear the various, uh, they do a lot, they pull a lot of old footage, especially of his father, um, and the things that his father would do and say and plan, the grand plan for Tiger. It just felt like it was too much. The documentary um, could have made an amazing piece about Tiger and what he's gone through and his trials and tribulations and done it in a much cleaner way, also in a shorter way. I kind of, at various points, start to tune out after 92 minutes of just part one. Um, this is a guy who's only really in his 40s, so I mean, how much of his life do you really want to try to stretch out? He's still alive. Yeah. Um, so... That was the other big point. I mean, the whole documentary, it was all over the place, jumping from his um, from his childhood to where he was collegiately and his father's expectations and his relationships with people and, uh, you know, his first girlfriend, his kindergarten teacher. They were pulling these people out of the woods, um, literally, no pun intended. Um, you know, they, they really, they, they were just stretching to try to fit so much in uh, that they lost me. They lost me a point. It, it, it felt like um, they could have taken some portions out, told less of the story in a more clean, succinct way. Uh, and I felt the same way a little bit about the book. Obviously, you're going to get all those details, and, it, and there was better flow there. It's almost as if they looked at the book, took all the juicy stuff out of it, and made this documentary. So um, I, I very much feel that it was a bit long. Uh, that it was hard to follow at points. It was also hard to trust the various people that they got interviews from uh, because something you and I talked about off-air is that there's really no one from Tiger's camp here that's in it. There's no Tiger direct family members. There's quote-unquote family friends um, and that we don't know the nature of their relationship with Tiger. And so they're speaking... Uh, we have no idea what their intent is. So without Tiger's input in it, it feels like a very one-sided narrative of, uh, you know, just what's out there without, you know, Tiger or his people or his family uh, able to defend some of the deeper accusations that it feels like this documentary points out. Yeah, and this is a documentary that, I mean, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, oh, this is going to be cool. And then in the week, in the days leading up to it, I got, we was reading all this polarizing reaction on the internet about how this isn't good. This is sort of like a mixed bag. And Tiger's agent, Mark Steinberg, actually, I think the day the documentary released, like, basically slammed it in the media. And he, as a quote I pulled from an article that was interviewed him, it said, quote, just like the book it is based off of, the upcoming HBO documentary is just another unauthorized and salacious outsider attempt to paint an incomplete portrait of one of the greatest athletes of all time. That's from Mark Steinberg. And I know you have experience working with Mark Steinberg. So what do you think about what he had to say there? You know, you know, you know, Mark is obviously an amazing agent and he, uh, it's part of any agent's job to protect, um, the entire entity. 
company uh, that they that they work for and work with. Um, so, you know, Agent Mark, it could have been anyone, and, and, and it could have been any representative. That's what your agent's going to do because clearly this, uh, if Tiger's not involved in it, his camp isn't involved in the producing of it, kind of like Michael Jordan with The Last Dance. Um, if that's not a fully involvement, then, then clearly that's not something that they want out there to promote because it's such an interesting thing, right? Like, like I tried to put myself in Tiger's shoes here, which I know is kind of impossible, but just as a golf fan, not as somebody who works in golf, like, imagine if somebody, you're still alive, and somebody's making a documentary about your life that makes it almost sound like you're not, and they're telling all of these random facts from people you probably haven't spoke to in forever, and you have very little control over what's going on out there. Um, I, I'm not saying that, that that you shouldn't make a documentary about it, but it, it felt like, to me, my personal view is that it felt like it was like 40 years too soon for this. You know, it felt like it, it felt like he, um, you know, it, it, he's thriving right now. He's a father. Uh, he's playing some of his best golf still. Um, you know, he's got he's, he was in the headlines a couple of weeks ago for playing with his son in a tournament. Uh, and it was just amazing what he's done to kind of recover. Everybody knows the Tiger narrative and what's happened in his life. I mean, if you were alive and, and any what any somewhat interested in the news and sporting news, he knew what happened around, you know, 2007. And um, and he really worked hard to rebuild his image. So this documentary coming out now that kind of takes a shot, it made me start thinking like, oh, my God, you know, now Charlie's son is of age where this is coming out and it's rehashing all of these deep emotional issues between his grandfather and his father. And it's like, I just felt bad. Uh, it's like, I wouldn't want this stuff to come back out. It sounds like Tiger's worked very hard and his people have worked really hard to, to talk about all the good, amazing things that his foundation and that Tiger has brought to the world to raise billions of dollars for charity. Uh, it didn't feel like this documentary was necessary. I thought it was going to be something different than what it is. It's just rehashing all the issues. Um, and we can get to how it ends. Uh, in a little bit, but the way it ends also makes me think that's its true intent. Um, the, the final quote unquote mystery death that they left us with that cliffhanger. Yeah, I think in terms of obviously, you made a great point. Obviously, nobody really in Tiger's inner circle is here. Tiger doesn't talk about this outside on this outside of our cribal footage, which obviously they can just grab from just getting the rights here. None of his family, none of his current associates. I mean, we get people like. Stevie Williams, former caddy, his alleged first girlfriend, and like a family friend that kind of back up like putting pictures on the screen saying, oh, look, I was a tiger when I was younger. We're friends. But to me, the timeline that sort of screens like, okay, after wins the Masters in 19, I feel like this is probably when this project really gets green lit. And then obviously it was set to come out at the end of, that, end of last year, 2020. Then Last Dance comes out. They're like, ooh. Let's build on this momentum and make our own sort of last dance thing. But they did it without Tiger's involvement at all. So they're left trying to, you know, create the formula without having this, the actual person whose story is about. Yeah, and I don't I don't blame them. Uh, they, they got some really amazing footage. And, you know, they got, what was it, Ryan Gumble was in it. So they had some, had some people from, you know, Credible Golf uh, news outlets that covered him. Golf media, uh, yep. It, it's, not, it's not like all kind of, you know, random, you know, eight circle away from Tiger type people. Uh, it, 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 it's credible 
but the problem is it, it just feels like it's part of the truth and not the whole truth um, because we don't get this tiger side of things and we're not getting that. So it's hard to, for me to judge the documentary um, completely uh, because we're not getting reaction to it and what, what was going on on the inside. Um, and because Tiger's father passed away and he's not able to talk now in reflection of all the things that were, the footage that was shown in the documentary. So you're just taking snippets of time and piecing it all together to tell a story. Um, and I don't know, I, I'm having a hard time deciding if the documentarians were trying to just lay out the facts that we know because Tiger's team didn't want to be involved in it, or were they trying to say something? And we'll find out if they're trying to say something about Tiger as a person or his story or, you know, icons can't be perfect type of thing uh, after next week's episode. I think we'll have a better idea of what the message here is. Um, you know, he's, I, we're, we're all flawed people, right? Nobody is perfect. We all have issues. Tigers, unfortunately, were, were very much broadcast to the world and uh, because he was so important to the world. Um, but, you know, we, I personally believe to second chances, and, uh, and clearly he's done a good job of trying to fight back and make up for big mistakes. So I applaud people like that. Uh, who admit their faults and, and don't keep digging the hole deeper. So, um, you know, personally, you know, you can't, he, he made, he made big errors and, and part two is going to get into that. You know, they kind of left us with that cliffhanger. So, um, and it's not fair or right what he did, but I do think he's, you know, he's very clear. He's doing a great job being a father. Um, and he's trying to rebuild his image and his, his foundation is wonderful. And uh, he's done so much for the game of golf. Um, and, you know, we can get into it a little bit here, but the document, one of the parts of the documentary that I enjoyed was truly looking at what Tiger did with race in golf. And, and you know, there were some things I didn't like. Um, the whole Wanda Sykes joke, stand-up stuff. I mean, that was not necessary probably to rehash um, Tiger's lack of specific racial identity. But, um I didn't know what they were trying to do there. Uh, it felt very forced and strange. But Tiger, regardless, was something fresh and and important for diversity and the mission of golf being a worldwide global sport. Everybody plays in every country, uh, for the most part, uh, that has access to it. Um, it, it. It's more popular overseas than it is in the U.S. So I, I will just say this, that I, I'm curious what the narrative is really trying to say. They, the reason why it was so back and forth all over the place in part one uh, leads me to think that they're going to make a stronger statement in part two. So they put out a lot of facts. They kind of set everything up on a tee, and we'll see where it goes, um, I guess, next Sunday night. Yeah, I know you mentioned, obviously, I do. I agree with you that the exploration of the issue of race, I think, was probably the best part of this documentary. I felt they did a good job sort of exp- giving some background, explaining a lot of this stuff. But a couple yeah, of things, much, things really stuck out to me. And one that really bothered me is sort of like they had no idea, I think, how they wanted to portray Tiger's relationship with his father, Earl, because 
we have obviously the whole bit about how he's trained him since he was a child to be a golf prodigy. And we sort of get like bits of like, oh, like he was like Todd Marinovich's da- dad, where he was trying to make him into a into machine like golfer, except it actually worked. We also have bits about how like Earl was a flawed human being in the relationship with DK. We couldn't, I could never figure out what they're trying to get us to believe about the relationship between Tiger and Earl. It feels almost a bit like a hit job on Earl. Yeah, it felt very, um, it was very unfortunate. Uh, initially, the documentary starts with that amazing, and, and that was from the trailer, that amazing speech about him talking about how proud he is of his son. But then the documentary leaves us with this feeling that Tiger was not very close with his father in the ailing years. And I don't know who they were interviewing at the time. I think it was one of the un, uh, another quote-unquote family friends uh, who was close to Tiger's father who was saying something like, you know, Tiger felt like this immense grief uh, for not being with someone in their later years that was that ailing. Or, or just saying, maybe not Tiger felt that way, but that people in general, if you don't spend time with them when they're closing down on their final days, you can feel guilt. They were just trying to say that this relationship is still broken. We don't really know that. Unless Tiger or his father says it, like, we don't know really what their relationship was like. Um, and it's, who are we to judge? So I didn't I didn't like that portion either. I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, just state the facts of what's out there. And, um, you know, stop. It almost, I almost wanted to say at one point, like, stop trying to tell this person's life. Um, you know, and, and stop trying to, to, to force certain things. We, we, everybody has it does, nobody has a perfect relationship with their parents uh, Tiger included so you know it just don't it, it felt like they were trying to set us up for a narrative that very much feels like Tiger had become a man didn't need his father anymore but he still loved his father because he talked to you saw that amazing after he went to the US uh, or was the British Open I think it was the British Open and the US Open one of the two where he talked about how his dad wasn't there that day because he was home, but he can't wait to go and, and give him a hug. And then it leads into, obviously, his father passing, causing a lot of emotional trauma for Tiger. And, and that's what's going to now lead into this whole, you know, um, he has issues with infidelity. So, but, but is that the whole story? I don't know. I don't, I feel, it just feels like it's missing some important parts. And, uh, and, and, and when you make a documentary like that, I don't know if you can do it without telling the whole story. Um, I guess you can. I mean, we saw uh, HBO put out that Finding Neverland or Leaving Neverland or whatever it was, the Michael Jackson story after he passed away. So you only got, you know, kind of the non-Michael Jackson camp going after him. It's another HBO documentary that there are facts, there are truths, but is it the entire truth? I just don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I and mean, like, it definitely felt like that was one weird through line. I did not like the way they treated Earl Woods. The other thing that was sort of weird was they sort of had this whole narrative going on about how, like, Tiger was, like, not emotionally developed as an adult. And, like, we spent a lot of time with, like, his college girlfriend. And she's reading a letter that he allegedly wrote to broke, break up with her, like, complete with, like, mechanical language. And, like, I'm, like, I get that they're trying to set up, like, oh, like, his problems with women setting up the whole inf- like, infidelity thing that we know happened to him. I'm, like... Look at this. I'm like, this just feels like an odd way to go about this. Like, we don't need to hear from this woman. Yeah, yeah. That's I. I don't want to speak for them because I don't know. I, I would guess that she was really willing to tell her story. They probably reached out to quite a few folks that he had maybe either 
uh, had a relationship with or was friendly with or whatever, childhood friend. I don't know. Maybe she was just one of the ones that had an interesting anecdote. Because I do think it's interesting that that letter to me looks like it may be legitimately signed by Tiger and written by Tiger. Um, and the family friend that tells the story about the argument that Tiger can't be distracted by a girlfriend and that he needs to focus on, quote unquote, the plan. Um, if it's true, uh, it's interesting and, and, and it would make a lot of sense for how much focus that he, that he had to, you know, to, to become the player that he wanted to be. Um, but once again, if we don't have Tiger's response to that letter, uh, we won't really know. So once again, they're, they're taking all of these random little anecdotes and telling the story that's out, that's the one version of the story, but once again, not the complete so maybe there were things that were going on in Tigers and her relationship that they didn't share in the documentary uh, that was also causing them to Tiger to feel like uh, as the, the letter said something about um, that her and her family were using him or something like that, right? Uh, we don't know if it was just this one incident. So once again, they, she said it in the documentary, the first girlfriend, they were together for three years. Um, and then all of a sudden, this, this breakup happened so suddenly. So we weren't there. Tiger's not telling his own story. We're just hearing these bits and pieces. It's one, it's one of the tougher things about this documentary. You can take it and process it as the truth, but until we hear from Tiger, or unless we hear from um, Tiger's parents about what was going on at that time, it's only one side of the story. Yeah, it doesn't do a good job for us filling out the picture. I also think one thing that was lacking that sort of bomb is like, I don't know if you feel the same way. I don't think we got a lot of Tiger the golfer because, I mean, like, yes, we saw him winning the amateurs and winning the masters and winning majors, but, like, there was not really, like, a ton, in my opinion, of, like, this is, like, how great Tiger was on the golf course. Well, like, here's what Tiger going on in Tiger's life off the course. I get, I think you need a bit more to reflect on why we cared so much about how great Tiger was. And I don't think we got it. Cause I mean, we had a couple of golf journalists on, but like we couldn't get one competitor who played against Tiger to talk about what that was like. Yeah. It was, it was interesting too, because maybe one minute of the 92 minutes talked about the whole Phil Nicholson rivalry. Um, and yeah. they had what two, that were probably 45 seconds each from Nick Saldo, who played with him in, in the first round of the 97 Masters where Tiger won it, uh, and then played with him at another, or another major. Um, and it was like they just had Saldo. And other than that, you're right. This was very much focused on Tiger the person. And not the, I mean, if you were watching this and you did not know that Tiger has, you know, 80-plus wins and is hunting down the, the, the major title record and has, you know, over $100 million worth in earnings and just the, the countless amazing things that he's done. You would know he was a really good player, but I don't think that you would have the depth of just how great he was. We did skip very quickly from 1997 to 2006. Uh, and they, they talk about that Tiger dominated. Saldo said that it was from that day on, it was it was full-blown Tiger. But you're right. This documentary is about his family, his upbringing, um, another child prodigy, and what it takes to be a, a 
stage dad, like like his, his father was, um, and the relationships, and and they're trying to tell us something about um, not how great he was, but the cost of being great. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna find out a little bit more next week as well of what they are trying to portray. Um, but it, 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 it's just once again, it's really really hard to uh, sit through all of that, knowing what we all know and finding that as a completely fair representation of what was going on and truly who Tiger was uh, to the game of golf. They showed a few snippets of him interacting with kids through his foundation, and uh, and they showed him also the other side of it, him as the megastar uh, on and off the course that was transcending the game. But uh, it really wasn't about golf. You're right. It, it, it definitely felt like golf was just a medium, uh, and, and it was more just about a, a human interest piece in, in the Tiger himself and his father. So it's a father-son piece, really. And uh, and it's a little bit unfortunate that uh, we're not getting Tiger's view uh, of his relationship with his father. No, we're not. And we do end it. We get the tease where I'm guessing it was clearly somebody who's involved in the infidelity scandal, which is why they left it on the cliffhanger there. But I'm just curious about you. It's like, have you, does, does this make you want to watch the second part and get the full story? Or you think, are you going to check out and be like, you know what? Like, this is not like the way I think it should be told. And like, I'm not going to see this through the end. I, I am torn on this. Um, it's an HBO documentary. The, the produce, it's, it's got great production value. Uh, it, it's, it's a little bit over the top. Did you notice, like, through the entire part one, there was, like, so much, like, ominous music playing in the background? I wrote yeah. it down, like, as I was watching, I'm like, it's got such, like, a dark tone in certain sections, and it felt, like, over overly dramatized. But um, I hope that part two... Um, is is more so a okay. This is what happened from a first-hand account. This woman that we're going to see, um, they're going to that's going to be like the first five minutes because it was obviously a big deal that this you know America's sweetheart of sorts, quote unquote, um, you know, Tiger on Oprah and, and transcending the game and on the covers of magazines, and now all of a sudden this scandal. Um, you know, I'm hoping that's just a brief moment, and then the part two goes into what he has done to recover from these problems and and uh, become what I personally, I'm not speaking for anyone else, I think he has become a better person, uh, and, and my personal interactions with him is that he really is trying to rebuild his image, and he, he knows, I get the sense he knows... Um, now that he's had to grow up and, and take on such of that burden and be a good father uh, and love his family and, um, and repair a lot of the brokenness that, that he you know, went through uh, or we're about to see in, in the, this portion of his life through the documentary. So I'm hoping that it, it ends on a high note. I'm willing to give it like another 15 minutes or so. Uh, but if it continues to tell this like, you know, dark tale of the, the, the other side of, of Tiger that's, you know, beyond the smile, uh, and, it, and it's trying to just kind of tear him down, you know, 
whether I work in golf or not, I, I just don't really love watching those kinds of things. I don't need to, uh, we, once again, we all have, you know, issues in our lives that we have to deal with. Um, but I just, I, I like to give people credit for trying to, to fix and admit their problems. Uh, and I don't need to see them continue to, to rip apart his life. I keep, as I said earlier, I keep thinking about his son and his daughter are now at an age where they have cell phones, probably, uh, and they have Twitter, I'm assuming, um, and they're now going to see this big documentary about their father uh, and, and what happened. Now, I, I know it's not good to hide the past, but I'm sure this doesn't, it doesn't do any good um, to rehash a part of somebody's life that was of their lowest moment. So, once again, I am hoping that this is just a you know, a first-hand account, information uh, and of, of what happened. And yes, this was an affair. Um, it went on for this much time. And and then, you know, we move on and, and get to all the rebuilding of his life and um, and the responsibility that he's taken as, as a father, as a, uh, as a partner um, now, and, uh, and, and his focus to grow uh, a better life. So, I don't know. I, I'm just very much a, uh, I don't need to see more of this, this dark, ominous, he, you know, his, his broken relationship with his father and his father and his, his male mentors from growing up were all um, philanderers and they, you know, that's what the vision that Tiger grew up with because he was on the court watching as his father was entertaining other women. Like, I, I don't need to see that. I don't need to see that, you know. Um, I, I, I don't need to be given fluff, but at the same time, like, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. I don't know. Uh, and and uh, some people might find it interesting. Me personally, I, that's not for me. Yeah. I think it just went too far down the rabbit hole where like the difference of the last dance is like, there were times the last dance, like you were having fun, you were laughing. Like, I know they had the, all the principles involved in that, but at the same time, like, they were able to dive into things like Jordan's gambling issues and like the murder of his father and like balance it out with like, Oh, this is a funny story that happened along the way. Like we had nothing fun really in here. We had a lot of like dark and depressing stuff. Yeah, you're right. That's such a great point. I, I don't remember like smiling at any point in this, even when he, maybe early on those, those old videos, um, uh, a tiger when he was on TV and when he was really little. And I did find it cool. The home videos that the first girlfriend had a tiger kind of dancing. Uh, I don't know if you remember that part. Yeah, I where he kind of got his shirt open and he's just kind of cutting loose like that. That's cool. Um, once again, I don't really know if Tiger would really want that out. Would I want my high school videos or what, uh, of, of hanging out with my buddies, uh, or, um, you know, whatever out there. And, and, or, you know, just with, I'm, I'm just a little confused by what Tiger would really want. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a great, fun clip, but once again, like, should she really be sharing that? Like, come on now. It, once again, it just feels too personal uh, without Tiger being involved or consenting in it. The cool thing about Jordan uh, was that, yeah, it did feel like there were portions of the story that Jordan controlled. Uh, but there were also plenty of times when Jordan is speaking 
and he's controlling the, the conversation in the last dance, but it might not always be in a good way for Jordan. There were some times where he was talking about how he was like, I, I straight up fought him at practice, or I told him to give me the damn ball. And it actually shed himself in a, in a bit of a overly competitive life, uh, that he wasn't the nicest man. So he, you know, that was what was cool about the last dance, and that's what's an enjoyable as a sports fan. Um, you know, we didn't need to get into to Jordan's personal life relationship uh, in order to get a great sports documentary about him as an icon as a competitor. If you want to read that stuff, there's plenty of it online. Uh, if you're going to make a documentary about a person, I feel like you need to, to balance a lot of what was going on in their life. And, and this, I feel like, lacks balance, and it sounds like you agree. Yeah, because I feel like this is something where they probably went to Tiger. Tiger said no, and they said, you know, we're going to do it anyway. I think that was the wrong way to do this because I think you need to have Tiger buying in on this. I know he's not the same magnetic, like, speaker as Jordan is publicly. He's a little more private than Jordan is, but, like, I feel like you need Tiger there to give this more route as it actually has. I, I feel like there's going to be a day. Just from my experience with Tiger, um, and I can tell you countless funny stories of being on the road, and, you know, there was a time I <laughs> Uh, my first year as an intern, I, I got into an elevator. I was working at the BMW Championship uh, at, at uh, Crooked Stick in Carmel, Indiana. And uh, I got into an elevator because I was, you know, picking up like a, a, a courtesy car key. And I was on the seventh floor. I, I the, It stopped at like the fifth floor. And Tiger Woods gets on the elevator with me. And, um, you know, this is 20 well, 2013, so at this 2013, and, you know, he's got his jeans on, a, a, a gray Nike dry fit top, backwards hat, and he's eating a Granny Smith apple. And I literally am just like, <laughs> I'm kind of like peeing in my pants a little bit because I'm like, oh my God, Tiger Woods getting on the elevator. And um, he just goes, what's up, man? And uh, clicks the lobby button, kind of looks at me, kind of, I'm, I've got a backpack and all my stuff. He's like, oh, you work in the tournament? I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, Mr. Woods, I am. He's like, cool, thanks for thanks for doing everything. Like, we finally get to the lobby, he gets out, and like 15 people in the lobby like come running over to try to get his autograph. And as I'm walking away, he goes, I'll see you at the tournament. And I'm just like, oh, my God. So it's like, you know, I can sit here and tell you just countless little interactions I've had with him. He strikes me as the kind of guy who... When the camera's on and he's on the golf course, he's the ultimate competitor. When he's off and finally he's done with that competitive drive, he's just another casual, nice guy um, who just happens to be, you know, one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, and, you know, there's immense pressure when that, when there's, you know, everybody wants your attention. But when it's just you and him in an elevator, nice guy. I think one day he will sit down and want to tell his story um, and, and he'll be cool with it. Uh, but until that day, it sounds like, once again, I feel like this documentary is forced right now. Uh, I think there's still many more chapters of his story to tell uh, and see where he goes through his 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, and I think it would be better to tell the story of Tiger once we see what happens with his two kids and to see what their playing career is like. Or maybe not. Maybe they don't become professional. Maybe they do other things. But one day to look at his relationship 
as the father in between what his father did for him uh, to what he's doing for his kids. I think that would be a better story to tell uh, than where we are right now. It just feels too soon. Yeah, and I mean, every HBO has a great reputation for documentaries. They don't always hit home runs. This might be a swing and a miss. We'll find out for sure next week. Dan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'm, I can follow you on social media, keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. I've been a little more active again on Twitter, uh, which can be a dangerous thing, uh, <laughs> not politically, but um, more sports-wise. And, you know, it's, I try to keep my mouth shut on Twitter a little bit because, you know, it always ends up biting you. Um, I really wanted to say something uh, or make a comment because about Eric Ebron, uh, who did Colts fan, you know, obviously he quit on the Colts last year and kind of had that whole fake injury thing. He didn't get re-signed by the Colts. He goes to Pittsburgh and then wanted to run his mouth about, you know, them coming back to beat the Colts. Uh, and I really wanted to say something today as well, losing to the Browns, but I didn't. Anyway, you can find me at Emark 207 uh on on twitter so hopefully um hopefully i uh can find the right word uh but i also don't want to be a troll so i'm I'm trying to make more general thoughtful statements on twitter these days uh rather than inciting more issues in the world we have enough yes we do dan thanks all the time i really appreciate it thanks mike all right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Andy Vasquez, for coming on to talk about the Jets' coaching search and some other issues the Jets will face this offseason. Alex Fasano for having a little therapy session about his Steelers and doing the week, the divisional round NFL picks. And Dan DiMarti, we just heard, breaking down the Tiger Woods documentary, part one on HBO. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at what a Jets trade for Deshaun Watson could look like, I have a few theories out there. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on any of those podcatchers. You can find all episodes there, including our bonus episode last week, where I spoke to Will Schneiderham, Martin Pucci, and the immediate aftermath of the Francisco Lindor trade. Fun conversations there. You can also leave your feedback and star ratings as well. Help make this podcast even better going forward. Please do that. It does mean a lot. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips, on YouTube. Individual conversations from the, from the episode will be up there as well. You can also do that. That would be great. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Coming up next on the podcast, we're going to have a championship round preview in the NFL, NFL picks, and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than the Steelers fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.